something has went terribly wrong. A seemingly normal person has turned out to be an absolute killer. Join me as we explore some of the most prolific serial killers and homicides of the 20th century. You're listening to Seven. I'm your host, K-Town, and tonight we're going to be talking about serial killers with my special guest, author Blaine Pardo, and his daughter, Victoria Hester. They have teamed up to write a book. It's called A Special Kind of Evil, The Colonial Parkway, Serial Killings. Now, this book details four years, a killer or killers stalk Virginia's Tidewater region, carefully selecting their victims and sending a wave of terror throughout that community. Now, this serial killer um, was never found, or killers were never found. These types of serial killing cases, of course, are, are more intriguing, I think, since they, they never caught the person. And, um, and it makes you wonder whether, you know, these people actually stop killing, or have they changed their method of killing, or what? It's just very odd. Uh, I'm going to be talking to them in, in detail about this case. And I'm wondering whether or not they're any closer to solving the case. I mean, this happened back in the 80s. So maybe um, they've got some some leads on it or, or something. I mean, it's just really hard to believe that this killer hasn't been caught with everything that we have at our uh, disposal now. Hopefully I remember to ask them about DNA, whether or not they collected any and they're able to, to use that now to try and make a connection. But you can pick up the book. It's on Amazon. They have it in Kindle Unlimited right now, which is free, or you can get it on audiobook, which is free and paperback is available as well. That's a special kind of evil. All right. So let's bring out our special guest tonight. Here is author Blaine Pardo and his daughter, Victoria Hester, here to talk about a special kind of evil. My special guests tonight are true crime authors, father and daughter, Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester, and they're here to discuss their new book called A Special Kind of Evil that details a killing spree by a person or persons during the 1980s on the Colonial Parkway. Now, that book is available on Amazon.com and other fine book retailers. Blaine and Victoria, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Now, um, before we get uh, into your book, why don't each of you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to take a look at this particular case? Do I go, go first, ahead. Victoria? <laughs> okay. The, uh, well, you know, my daughter and I write uh, true crime books, and when we look at cases, we really enjoy kind of diving into cold cases, and I was asked by a British magazine to write an article about some, you know, anything I wanted. They wanted something on serial killings. And I stumbled into the Colonial Parkway murders, which were in the Virginia area in the 1980s. And uh, as I really started the research on this, I, I became fascinated with the case and realized that, you know, uh, an article really just touched the surface of this. Um, people are fascinated by cold cases, how they become cold, 
what information is available about the killers, etc. So I reached out to Victoria and, and asked her if she wanted to take on a new project with me. And uh, it, it began a two-year journey, really, to, in terms of research and interviewing and things along those lines. Yeah, and when he came to me with the idea for the book, it was weird because I'm such a true crime junkie writing um, true crime all the time and being in the true crime world. And I had never heard of the Colonial Parkway killings, and we live in the same state they happened in. So I was intrigued just by itself. I had never heard of it, never seen it on TV. So after looking everything up, it was it was fascinating to know that it, even though it happened in the same state, I knew nothing about it. This is truly um, mind-boggling that someone could kill these many people and um, and then just disappear. You know, you've got a serial killer that struck over a four-year period. He always murdered couples uh, or always uh, attacked people in pairs um, and, and then stops. Now, conventional thinking will tell you that this is a killer that has gone to jail. Or if it's a pair of murderers, one of them is dead or one has gone to jail, um, you know, or both are dead. Um, yeah, and that used to be the old school thinking about serial killings. But if you look at some of the, the more contemporary FBI uh, profiling information that's out there, what we're starting to see is an evolving picture of serial killers in this country. And one of the things I, that we struck us is you have killers that stop for an extended period of time and may never start back up again. BTK, uh, the Green River Killer, where these are killers that experience some sort of life-altering event, and it may be that they got married or had a child. In the case of BTK, it, it, he went out and got a new job, and, and that that was the changing event for them. Um, so I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that the killer died or went to prison or moved somewhere else to continue these crimes because the FBI's VICAP system hasn't spotted a trend of this type of murder anywhere on the globe. Uh, I, I tend to tend to believe that this killer stopped because they had a close call with the law and said, okay, if I continue doing this, I am going to get caught. Or they experienced something in their life that somehow twisted them away from from the path of murder that they were on. One thing I do want to say was interesting, Blaine, is that I didn't hear you uh, talk about is, you know, when I've interviewed uh, people about serial killers, you, you know, you often hear about their um it's it's something that they can't stop. So I'm wondering, you know, does that not change your perspective when you hear a uh, psychologist or profiler say, you know, that when they're studying serial killers, they'll say that their compulsion for killing, I mean, that can't be satisfied. They will always kill. I mean, are you in agreement with that? Not necessarily. I mean, the FBI's own profiling information says, you know, that that and we've seen a number of cases where the killings have stopped and stopped for a long time. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not capable of it. They're filling that need through some other means. And it, or whatever has angered them has brought them to, to a degree of calm. BTK murdered and murdered and murdered and then stopped completely. It wasn't until he was engaged in the media that we, you know, years later 
that that he began to correspond, and that's what led to his apprehension. So, I, I respect anybody who does profiling for a living, but uh, what we're seeing is some over the years a real evolution in what we perceive of, of uh, in terms of the behavior of a serial killer. Okay. I want to go back to the profiler here a little bit later, but let's, let's set people up for, um, you know, that, that time in the eighties. The and if you don't mind to give us an overview of what that area actually looked like and, uh, when the first killing actually occurred. Victoria, do you want to take the, uh, what the area is like? So in the late 1980s, the area we're talking about is the Tidewater area of Virginia. Um, It's close to Virginia Beach, which is a really popular spot even today um, for tourists and vacations. And the area that's focused is very military. Uh, There's lots of Navy bases. There's lots of Army bases in that area. There's a CIA training area. It's very heavy military. And this is just kind of a booming area in the 80s. It's still a smaller town kind of vibe, but it's up and coming, lots of military families and lots of close knit communities. Um, definitely quiet, not high crime area at all. You know, the, when you look back at that period, a, a lot of what the Colonial Parkway murders are is centered around the parkway itself. Uh, at least two of the crimes had some sort of connection to the parkway. And the parkway is the narrowest uh, of the national parks. It's and it stretches between uh, Yorktown through Williamsburg, Virginia, and up to Jamestown. It's 23 miles long, and it's very, very narrow stretch of road, uh, and it's very isolated. Uh, when you go down the parkway now, it's not that much different than it was in the 1980s. It's, it's a, there's no houses along it. It's a natural drive. It's designed to simulate a colonial road. They use a a real rough form of pavement so that you get the feel that it's a very different kind of road. It's not very well patrolled either. While it's a national park, uh, you know, there's only six to 12 uh, park rangers that actually work that that over the, an entire period of a week. So you don't get a lot of coverage there. And it had a very weird nightlife. You know, during the daytime, it's all tourists traveling that road, going between Williamsburg, going to Jamestown, etc. But at night, it became an area where drugs were bought and sold, a um, lot of teenagers partying, um, intriguing sexual encounters, things along those lines. So it's it's an area that's that's really kind of dark. Now, the second set of murders took place out at Ragged Island, um, and Ragged Island has its own completely creepy vibe to it. I mean, it's a well-known area for homosexual activity and drug activity, et cetera, even in the 80s. Uh, and then the final murder took place, or a pair of murders took place further out in Kent County, Virginia, New Kent County, Virginia on uh, I-64. As much as we all love true crime, paranormal and conspiracy related topics, there comes a time when we have to decompress relax and have some good challenging fun well i've got just the thing for you join our team as we play the game called best fiends 
I would describe it as a puzzle game combined with a battle game. It has amazing graphics, colors, and sounds, plus it has tons of levels, with more being added every month. So you can literally play this game for hours on end, blow everything off that you have to do, and not feel guilty. Because Best Fiends requires critical thinking. Downloaded over a hundred million times globally. I don't watch a lot of television, so this is a great game for me and even better when I'm needing a fun distraction. Anyone can play Best Fiends. No internet required and it's free to download. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters too. Five-star rated mobile game on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Download free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Friends without the R, Best Fiends. Again, that's Friends without the R and the game is called Best Fiends. Join the fun now. Download Best Fiends. All right. Now, uh, so I know exactly the area you're talking about because that's where I went to training for the military. Uh, it's up, ah. it's up near, um, that's near Fort Lee, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about um, I want to I want to talk about the uh, maybe you you dug into this a little bit about the reaction of the public when this first occurred. I mean, was this getting a lot of press at that time? Well, so when the each, first. Oh, go ahead, Victoria. Go ahead. So each of the murders were kind of spread out. Um almost as much as a year in a couple of the cases. The unique thing that stood out about these murders versus any other murders in the area and really murders in general at the time was that each murder was a pair. It wasn't one person, it was two people, which really stands out in general because for someone to take control of two people or to take the risk that maybe one person could run away or get away or somehow attract attention was a big deal. But when the first murder occurred, it really didn't get much press. It was in the paper. It was in the news. People knew about it, but it was almost seen as like a freak hate crime. Almost. Um, the first couple was a lesbian couple and that's what was projected in the media. Uh, the media kind of, you know, wrote it off as being, you know, a one isolated incident. And they almost a year later, another incident occurred and it was another couple. And the media at that point was like, this is kind of weird. The media is the one that connected all four of these murders together and said, these are, these are weird. They're two couples each time. This is different than anything else. And that's when, once the media put that together, that's when the public also put that together and what prompted the police to try to work together to, work on these cases but obviously didn't work out too well so can you tell us the the method of this or his his or their preferred method of of killing if you don't mind well in the first two murders in 1986 uh, kathy thomas and rebecca dowski the the killer brought with him many implements of destruction um he tied he strangled them with a piece of naval twine um, and uh, attempted to decapitate them or, or cut their throats, uh, nearly decapitated uh, Kathy Thomas, uh, put their bodies in a car and tried to set the car on fire with diesel fuel, was unable to get ignition because diesel fuel ignites at a higher temperature. You know, Just throwing matches at it isn't going to do it. 
and then tried to push the vehicle into the river. Uh, what we see in the second set of murders uh, a year later uh, at Ragged Island is a gun was used um, and, and was used on both victims, uh, both execution style, although David Nobling was, was shot in the shoulder as well. The third set of victims, we don't know how they were killed. Um, their bodies are still missing. Their car was found abandoned on the Colonial Parkway less than a mile from where Kathy Thomas's car had been. Uh, and their clothing was in the vehicle, um, but they weren't really dating. And so it, it really didn't make sense why that, that was there unless that was the means of control that the killer used to, to maintain control of them. But their bodies have never been found, so we don't know what was used there. And the final victims, uh, Phelps Lauer, which took place on I-64, uh, they were apprehended or intersected by the killer at a rest area there. Uh, we do have an indication that a knife was used. Um, uh, Anna Maria Phelps had a small nick on one of her finger bones that was recovered, and uh, that nick indicated a defensive wound from a knife attack. How soon did the FBI get involved with the case? Did it take a while at that time? Because I have no idea how they worked back in the 80s, but did the FBI insert themselves immediately, or did that take a little bit? Well, it it's an interesting question because uh, you got to bear in mind at first they didn't think these crimes were connected so the first crime took place on national park land which was uh thomas dowski murders and those took place on national park property so the fbi had full jurisdiction so they were there the next day working that case i mean they once the body was found the fbi was contacted by the park service and, and they began work on this uh, they were directly involved in the third killing, uh, call Haley, uh, because the car was found on the Colonial Parkway. But the park rangers did not reach out to them for at least 24 hours. They, they were treating it as if it was teenagers going skinny dipping, despite the fact it was April and 40-degree weather. Um, yeah, they were treating it as just an abandoned vehicle, not really drawing the connection that this was a mile away from you know where a brutal murder had taken place. Um, and once the the connection was made between around the time of of Call Haley that the there was killer stalking couples, the FBI began to look at a broader scope of these things and and was involved to a, to a lesser degree when uh, the the fourth pair of murders took place, which was Phelps Lauer. Um, it wasn't until a little bit later that they put together a task force between the Virginia State Police and the FBI. But what muddied this even more is the two cases that were covered by the Virginia State Police were two different divisions of the Virginia State Police. So it wasn't even the same investigators working both. And it really was a shame that, that they couldn't kind of consolidate all of this. It wasn't until all eight victims, you know, had, had suffered with this before you really started seeing a task force pulled together. And really only because 
of the prompting of the victims' families. Now, was that was that a common thing? I mean, I thought they all just come together and work these cases, and it seems like they had a little bit of a riff. Were they not deciding who had jurisdiction over what, or what was the problem there? I think a lot of it came from feeling like they had jurisdiction over certain cases and the FBI's refusal of communicating between them. The FBI never sat everybody down, all these jurisdictions, the Virginia State Police, Norfolk Police. He never sat all of them down and said, you know, went through a slideshow of this is each crime. No one was really educated on the other crimes. They were focused on their crime. So when they're focusing on their crime, they're looking at their, you know, local usual suspects. They come up with their own theories. And of course, those theories, you know, may make sense to them, but in the grand scheme of things, they don't make sense. The Virginia State Police believed this, and the FBI believed this. It was, no one was on the same page, it felt like, for years. And to this day, a lot of people believe that they're still not on the same page. That's a shame. That is, that is a real shame. That had to be some of the reason why. Do you think that was some, let me ask you that. I don't want to assert my opinion, but do you think that's some of the reason why this killer hasn't been brought to justice or was he just that good? It very well could be why there hasn't been an arrest or even, you know, there's over a hundred people of interest and to whittle that list down. I mean, would it's hard, especially 30 years later, but just so many people are involved and not everyone is on the same page. And I think that that may play a part. Yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. I, 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 you know, we talked a lot with local authorities who were local sheriff's deputies. You know, there's close to 16 different jurisdictions in that area, and they're frustrated as well because they're like, look, I, I know this area. I know the perpetrators. I know the people. I didn't get pulled in, you know, and and the FBI and the Virginia State Police shared files with each other and shared information with each other, but it really wasn't run like you would think as a normal task force. We, you know, we're, we're, we're in charge. We need your help. Let's pull everybody in. They just didn't do that. And I think some of that, it's easy to look at it now and go, that's a mistake. But this was the 1980s. You know, we were just entering the era where we were understanding what serial killers were. And, you know, there, now this would never have happened. You know, today there would have been a task force after the second set of murders. They would have been on top of this a lot more. Um, but in the 1980s, you got to bear in mind, police and investigative techniques were totally different. Yes, they were. You, you are exactly right. Okay, so let me talk about the murders here. Um, Blaine, what, were they occurring in the same area of the parkway or was it just all up and down that area? You know, these are spread out. um, The murders themselves, Ragged Island is uh, across the James River. All of these crimes are within 20 to 30 minutes drive of each other with no problem. Um, As I said before, Call Haley and Thomas Dowski are less than a mile from each other. But we actually have very little indication that uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley were actually ever on the parkway. We know their car was the, uh, Keith's car was there. We know their clothing was there, but there's no evidence that they were there. So as far as we know, they were killed somewhere else, and their vehicle was simply deposited on the parkway. Um, 
we don't know the exact location where the where the killing of Thomas Dowski took place. We know where the car was. We know that the victims were in the car. Their bodies had been placed in the car and soaked in diesel fuel. But we never learned where the actual location was where they were killed. Um, you know, the only the the other two crimes we have a good idea of where they were killed by where the bodies were found, etc. But yeah, it, it really complicates this. My special guest tonight is true crime author's father and daughter, Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. And we will have more for you when we return right after this. And my special guests tonight are true crime authors, Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. And we are discussing their new book called A Special Kind of Evil. You should pick that up off Amazon. Now, um, let's let's get back to the profiling here. Can you tell us, Blaine, what they said about the type of person that might be committing these murders? Well, we talked with Larry McCann of the Virginia State Police, who was one of the first profilers who said, you know, these cases are connected, and he had been trained by the FBI. Leary believes firmly it's two people that are working together, one dominant personality and one person who's more submissive. Um, these are people that are familiar with police procedures. They may very well be policemen or capable of impersonating policemen. Uh, this is an organized serial killer. You know, there, there's organized and disorganized killers. You think of the son of Sam, he's disorganized. He walks up to a car, shoots somebody, and runs away. This is an organized killer. This killer spent time with his victims. The, the killer or killers, depending on your theory. This killer apprehended them, in many cases took them to a different place, killed them, and then staged the bodies, and more importantly, staged all of the vehicles for theft, with the exception of the very first victim where they pushed the victim's car into the water. Every one of the other vehicles was staged for theft. The keys were left out in the open. There was something done to the vehicle that would attract attention to it. This indicates somebody who's familiar with police procedures. They know if somebody steals that car and is caught with it, it's going to muddy up the investigation. Uh, to me, that's always pointed to law enforcement. And I, I think someone impersonating a, a figure of authority such as law enforcement, would be much more apt or able to get control of two victims. What about the military? You, you talked about a lot of military in that area. I can't at all rule out the military, and I know the FBI spent quite a bit of time looking into that, uh, especially with the Navy base right there within a mile of, of where Kathy Thomas's car had been found. 
uh, and ourselves, we actually pulled up the logs for the evening of the crime from them and went through them to see who was going through the gate, etc. And the FBI thoroughly checked all the ships that were in port to see were the, was it potential that there was a certain naval vessel always in port when these crimes took place. So there's been a lot of analysis along those lines, but nothing that seems to tie it together. Okay, so so what about witnesses? Isn't it hard to be? All right, um, you got two people there. You know, one of them is not just standing there watching the other one being murdered. Um, Hopefully someone screamed and, and got some attention. Did anybody come forward and say that they saw something unusual or that would point to someone trying to trying to get these people under their control at all? No one has come forward and said they've heard screaming or actually seen the victims on the parkway or seen the victims with someone else that, you know, they weren't supposed to be with. There's witnesses before um, one, two of the victims left. They were at a party, but no one was seen following them. No one was seen leaving with them. It was just the two of them. And all these crimes happened pretty late at night uh, on a road. Okay. I was going to ask you that. that. Yeah. I was going to go ahead. Yeah. It was always very dark and poorly lit areas. Um, our theory in itself is that they were followed by another car that they were, you know, followed and either pulled over or flashed to pull over. And that's how they were apprehended. But they may have not even known. They may have thought it was a police officer or somebody of authority. They may have not even known that they were being, you know, taken or, you know, on, for all they knew, they could have been under arrest in their own minds. Um, by this fake police officer or person of authority. So they may have not screamed until it came down, till they realized what was actually happening. And at that point, they would have been in a car with one or two people. So there, w- there has not been anybody that's come forward and said, I've seen something. Yeah, Victoria and I went out where the last murders took place, uh, Phelps Lauer. We trespassed onto the property where it took place, which is a heavily wooded logging trail. And it actually appears very much as it did back back then. I, and, and we walked back there, and it was, it was sufficiently creepy. And Victoria said, yeah, I'm going to test screaming out here. Let's, let's you know, and, and she screamed. And, I mean, it, it literally was just absorbed by the wilderness. Um, you know, Ragged Island, it, there's definitely a sign that the victims tried to get away. You know, David Nobling was shot in the shoulder and then execution style. And, and, you know, Robin Edwards was shot execution style. So, you know, it, it, there's evidence that they lost control in the case of, you know, the Ragged Island murders. They definitely lost control in the first murders because Kathy Thomas had a cut on her hand from a knife wound. So she fought. Um, And we know for sure the last murders, there was a loss of control because there's a knife wound on the hand defensively of Anna Maria Phelps. Okay, um, I want to ask you about DNA. You know, I know this happened back in the 80s, but were they able to collect DNA from any of the victims? You know, formally the FBI won't confirm or deny any of that, and, and I'm appreciative of it, but our our interviews with law enforcement 
indicate that they pretty much kept the entire interior of the vehicle and the clothing from the first pair of murders, Thomas Dowski. Um, you know, there's also been, um, you know, I believe there's DNA evidence in the, in both call Haley as well. There's some beer cans that were recovered in the back seat. Uh, and Keith wouldn't have been drinking. Uh, he had had a recent, uh, DUI uh, arrest and wasn't didn't want to jeopardize anything by drinking again. So, you know, there's a good chance that whoever was drinking the beer in the back seat of that car was the killer. Um, there's also been some DNA, as I understand it, potentially recovered at uh, at the Ragged Island murders as well. So, there there is most likely some DNA that that is recoverable. Whether it's useful in this day and age, I I don't know that. And the reason I say that is, again, the 1980s techniques for gathering evidence didn't factor in DNA. So, is it potential that it's cross contaminated? Is it potential that it wasn't gathered or stored correctly over all these years? I would say there's a good chance of that. So whether it's useful DNA evidence, I, I don't know. And the FBI certainly isn't talking about it. Okay. All right. Now, didn't the family end up hiring a private detective to look into the case? Uh, yeah, they've, they've over the years had detectives come over and, and offer their time. Um, there was a private investigator out of Richmond that did it, who did an outstanding job, really, uh, pro bono going out and researching it. And, and there's been other uh, private detectives who have offered the family, you know, if, just for the expenses of it to go and, and do investigation. And I think they've done good work in, in the times that they've worked um, on this. They've, they've done a real remarkable job of it, honestly. But, you know, it, it's, it's a very difficult case to work because you can't get the Virginia State Police or the FBI to release information. We had to rely very heavily on interviewing former agents and former detectives and former officers to really find out what what were the bits and pieces that we didn't know that were recovered and in evidence, et cetera. All right. Now, I want to know your personal thoughts on this. Um, do you think it was one or, or two killers? Oh, this is Victoria. Yeah, this is something we argue about. <laughs> Go for we it, We argue kid. about this to no end. I personally believe it has to be two killers, and I'll make my case. Um, I think it has to be two in order to take control of two people, it's too risky for one person to try to take control of two people. Somebody can scream, yell, cause attention, run away, get away. I mean, there's too many possibilities. For one person to undertake that is, you know, it, it kind of sounds like it's ridiculous. Um, and also with the moving of the vehicles, most of them are staged. I also believe it has to be two people. Um, we believe that all the almost all the vehicles in these cases are staged, which is something that stands out in these cases against other cases of couples being murdered is the movement and staging of the vehicle. So in order to do that, you have to have somebody to pick you up. You can't just uh, park a vehicle and walk away at, you know, midnight and not be seen by, you know, people on the road and be reported. So to, in my opinion, it has to be two people. I don't agree. 
um, I think one person can take control. And bear in mind, like I said before, we lost control, we know for sure, in three of these cases. Uh, the victims lost control. If I walk up to a car with a flashlight and, and shine it in your face and say, yo, hand me your driver's license and registration, step out of the vehicle, I could walk you back to my car, say it's an unmarked police car or, or even a fake police car. I can handcuff you and put you in the back and say, I'm going to go check your story with your passenger, get the passenger out and talk to her for a minute and say, okay, well, I'm going to call this in. I need you to get in the back of my car as well. I can have two victims sitting in the back of my car completely in my control. And if you do it with authority, the police of that era didn't travel with partners a lot. A lot of times they operated solo. And they often took control of two or three people. It's possible if you know police techniques or if you operated that way. Um, I... The loss of control to me has always pointed to the fact that it was one person. Uh, if it wasn't, David Nobling wouldn't have fought, you know, to, to fought the attacker and tried to get away. Uh, clearly, if there were two people, I, I, well, I think Anna Maria Phelps would have fought no matter what. But you know, we've we've got evidence of of whoever this person was struggling, and if I can get control of one victim, I can use that as leverage to control the other victim. But that adds the creep factor to this. No matter what, I think these killer or killers kind of enjoyed seeing the reaction of one victim when the first victim's killed. That's part of what gets this person off. And, and that's a creepy factor to all of this. But uh, for all of Victoria's reasons, which are very sound, and by the way, fit the profile of the Virginia State Police perfectly, I, I would say that the opposite's true. I think it's one person. I don't see how that, you know what, I'm, I think I'm on Victoria's side here. Because no. I, don't, I don't see how that would happen because if you pull Most in, like you got <laughs> he's got a valid, I see how that could happen, right? You you pull someone over, you shine the flashlight, you can act like you're a police, you can have the stuff on, even, you know, everything on and look like you're official. But the staging of the car, and that that's going to take a little bit. Right, so you gotta have somebody yeah, pick you and up, especially in the it's, middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. it's just too messy. Somebody's gotta, somebody's gotta know or help you with that. I just don't see. Well, how that's I'm possible. hoping your listener. I'm hoping your listeners help us solve this because yeah. I, I will gladly pay you both five bucks if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I, I think I'm on Victoria's side here. I'm serious. I don't see how that no, could be okay. possible, but that, you bring up a valid point. Now I see how that could absolutely happen, you know, with one person. All right. Um, my, my last question is, uh, is someone still working this case? The FBI absolutely. to this day is working this case. They, you know, we report for some reason, people always come to us with tips. I don't know if it's because they feel more comfortable talking to somebody that's not a police officer. We get emails. Um, people call up and just we've had people walk up at our book events and give us tips or things that they, you know, saw or remember from that time or that day. And we obviously turn everything over to the Virginia State Police and to the FBI. No tip is a bad tip. If you saw something, heard something, heard a rumor, have some sort of 
um, into literally anything is a tip. And we turn everything over because you never know what you could have saw that day 30 years ago. You know, you could have saw two kids in a car with somebody else. And it, it really mean a lot in the, any of these cases. So they are currently working them with tips. There is no current task force dedicated to these cases, but they are working whatever tips come in. Uh, Blaine, tell my listeners what they're going to get when they buy the book and let them know if you guys have anything else you're working on and where they can find more information about you. Well, I, I recommend people read the book not because we make money off the book. You know, our, when we do these books, we do them to draw attention to the cases and hopefully generate new tips and leads. So I encourage you to go through the book. And if, especially if you lived in the area or you know the area, um, I encourage you if you have any information to reach out to the appropriate authorities and pass that information on. I, I believe that, you know, we can never give up on these cold cases. You know, if you do, the bad guys win, and I'm not into that. Um, in terms of, you know, we haven't got any other events really planned around uh, this book. We're kind of hip deep into our next uh, cold case book, which is on the Freeway Phantom, uh, which is the, uh, a string of unsolved serial killings in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s. All right. Many blessings to the both of you guys, and I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. All right. That was a fantastic interview there. I want to thank my special guest, Blaine Pardo, and his daughter, Victoria Hester, for joining me tonight to talk about the Colonial Parkway killings. And the book is called A Special Kind of Evil, which is available, which is available on Amazon. More in-depth interviews about some of the most notorious killers in history. And I will see you next time on The X Podcast.